A tisket, a tasket, what happened to my bracket? March Madness in the air, we're not just shooting baskets, risk is back in style. Put on a life jacket, it's choppy out there, we better beware of false bottoms, reversals, the spring of the bear. Waking up to the realities of higher prices for commodities, those will be with us for a while. Don't sit there in denial, the Fed's talking tougher, it's about to get rougher. Bond yields are rising, it's not surprising that investors want alpha, but that comes with beta. Yeah, I'm speaking Greek, get me a yiddo with theta on the side, because I'm down to ride no matter what, no matter when, give me more, not less. Because it's you, because it's me, on the Investopedia Express. Tikanis Gala, make that two weeks in a row of gains for the U.S. equity markets, but it wasn't pretty. Investors fought off tough talk from Fed Chair Jerome Powell, who said the Fed may have to consider more aggressive rate hikes at future meetings to fend off inflation. Commodity prices are on course to post their best year since 1915. Woodrow Wilson was the U.S. president, and the Red Sox won the World Series that year. The Fed's flex put another scare into government bond yields as the yield on the 10-year U.S. Treasury note topped 2.49% on Friday, the highest level since May of 2019. That's when the trade war with China really got hot. Returns on government bonds are having their worst year since 1949. The Yankees won the World Series that year, and Harry S. Truman sat in the Oval Office. Here's Truman speaking to the nation on March 12, 1947, as he announced that the U.S. would be giving Greece and Turkey up to $400 million in aid and civilian troop support to fend off communist governments that threatened to overtake them. If Greece should fall under the control of an armed minority... The effect upon its neighbor, Turkey, would be immediate and serious. Confusion and disorder might well spread throughout the entire Middle East. Moreover, the disappearance of Greece as an independent state would have a profound effect upon those countries in Europe whose peoples are struggling against great difficulties to maintain their freedoms and their independence. Sounds way too familiar, but history does rhyme. Speaking of history, market history that is, the S&P 500 has closed up more than 1% in six out of the last eight trading days. In the last 80 years, that's only happened two other times, October 1974 and November 2020. We are making history right here, right now. But it's not the big boy stocks that are driving returns these days. Big oil and financials are in the driver's seat. As for the mega cap giants, those stocks with market caps of $500 billion or more, not so good so far this year. Only Berkshire Hathaway is posting big gains up 17.5% year-to-date, and Warren Buffett and his team in Omaha have been very busy lately buying up shares of Occidental Petroleum and buying insurance company Allegheny outright for $11.6 billion the other day, its biggest deal in a very long time. Shares of Apple, Berkshire Hathaway's largest equity holding, are down more than 3% this year. So are shares of Alphabet and Amazon. Shares of Tesla are down nearly 5%, and CEO Elon Musk wants to split the stock so Tesla can start paying a dividend. NVIDIA is down 6%, Taiwan Semiconductor down 11%, and Meta Platforms has face-planted. The stock is down more than 35% in 2022. Since these stocks are so widely held and market cap heavy, they may be keeping the market-weighted indexes like the S&P 500 and the NASDAQ from rising even more than they have in the past two weeks. And money keeps flowing into the stock market, which is not something we see after market peaks followed by steep drops. According to data from Goldman Sachs, $93 billion of capital has flowed into U.S. equities since the start of the year after last year's record equity inflows of $243 billion. Meanwhile, some traders have spring fever, like senior frogs and Mazatlan kind of spring fever. Meme stocks were back on the dance floor last week as shares of GameStop jumped 70%, while AMC Entertainment shot up more than 30%. 
But it's not just fun and games. Some traders are piling into ultra-levered exchange-traded funds. Think of these like the doubling cube in Backgammon. They allow you to bet on the direction of an index, but multiply your bets by two or three times. The ProShares UltraPro QQQ ETF has become the most actively traded exchange-traded product of the year, according to FactSet. More than 119 million shares have changed hands on an average day this year, up 65% from last year and one of the highest levels of the past decade. Assets in the ETF, which goes by the ticker TQQQ, have surged by 58% over the past year to about $18 billion as of last Thursday. According to its prospectus, the ProShares UltraPro QQQ ETF seeks a return that is three times the return of its underlying benchmark index for a single day. This is some of the spiciest salsa in the cabinet because it can really cause a meltdown when the NASDAQ 100, which is the QQQ ETF, is not doing well. And it hasn't been until a couple of weeks ago. TQQQ is down 32% in 2022. Compare that with the NASDAQ 100's index decline of 9.6%. According to some good reporting from the Wall Street Journal, three of the other top 10 most actively traded exchange-traded products also offer leverage or inverse exposure to the market. Assets under management and funds that provide such inverse exposure to stocks have jumped $11.5 billion this year, up 42% from last year and the highest level since 2011, according to Morningstar Direct. And it's high times for cannabis stocks, so it must really be spring. The drumbeat for nationwide legalization is getting louder, and merger and acquisition activity is heating up. Last week, Cresco Labs, one of the largest U.S. cannabis retailers, announced it was buying Columbia Care, a medical marijuana producer for close to $2 billion, one of the fattest mergers in that industry yet. And just when you thought things couldn't get any weirder... Woo! Woo! I'm styling! That's the nature boy Ric Flair of professional wrestling, and he just sold a majority stake in his cannabis business, Ric Flair Drip Inc., to heavyweight champ Mike Tyson's Tyson 2.0 cannabis brand. My style is impetuous, my defense is impregnable, and I'm just ferocious. Take it easy, champ, and it looks like he is expanding his cannabis business and continuing to raise pigeons. And Tyson may be just in time. For the end of globalization, that is. Larry Fink, the chairman and CEO of BlackRock, the largest asset manager in the world with $9.5 trillion in assets under management, wrote in his most recent letter to shareholders that the Russian invasion of Ukraine has put an end to globalization we have experienced over the past three decades. He writes, quote, We had already seen connectivity between nations, companies, and even people strained by two years of the pandemic. It has left many communities and people feeling isolated and looking inward. I believe this has exacerbated the polarization and extremist behavior we are seeing across society today, end quote. If you listen to the rhetoric from countries including the U.S., China, and inside the European Union, you are hearing more talk about depending less on other countries for key commodities, semiconductors, and economic dependence. It may be too late to roll back globalization completely, but nationalism and independence are on the rise. Meanwhile, in Russia, which has been economically cut off for most countries except its closest allies and China, the Russian stock exchange reopened last week for the first time since late February to offer very limited trading. Shares rose 4%, but that does not tell the whole story. To prevent a steep sell-off, Russia's central bank banned short selling and blocked foreigners, who make up a huge chunk of the market, from selling their shares. The Kremlin also directed a Russian sovereign wealth fund to buy around $10 billion in shares. 
If you're looking for historical parallels, our pal Jamie Catherwood at Investor Amnesia found one. The New York Stock Exchange suspended trading for four straight months following the outbreak of World War I. The suspension that began on July 31, 1914, fostered a substitute trading forum called the New Street Market. Trading on New Street began almost immediately and offered economically meaningful liquidity services despite its impaired price transparency. It kept public companies afloat and their shareholders, but no one really knew what was happening inside the New Street Market. Let's get set up for a busy week ahead. Investors hope March goes out like a lamb after a choppy few weeks. The first quarter will come to an end, and it has been dominated by a correction in the S&P 500, a bear market in the NASDAQ, a bull market for oil and other commodities, and concerns about inflation everywhere, plus Russia's invasion of Ukraine. OPEC Plus will hold a virtual meeting this week during which the group is expected to keep current production plans in place, even with crude oil prices trading at a 14-year high and the IEA warning on the impact of losing Russian oil. The last few earnings reports from the first quarter will trickle in and chipmakers will be in focus as Micron reports results. Semiconductor CEOs were in Washington, D.C. last week asking for $53 billion in subsidies to ramp up production right here in the U.S. Shares of Micron are down 16% this year and more than 11% in the past year. We'll get news on electric vehicle deliveries this week as Tesla, Neo, and Xpeng report their March numbers. As for Tesla, analysts are predicting that the EV maker could be on pace for a $2 million vehicle delivery run rate this year. On the economic front, the U.S. housing market is in the spotlight amid rising mortgage rates, slowing home sales, and tight inventories. On Tuesday, we'll get the January update for the S&P Case-Shiller National Home Price Index, which tracks price movements in the 20 biggest cities in the country. The median price for a single-family home topped $352,000 last year, but rising rates could cool it down. The Fed's preferred inflation gauge, the Personal Consumption's Expenditures Index, or PCE Price Index, will be released on Wednesday for the month of February. It's likely to show costs of consumer goods and services continued to rise last month as the prices of commodities and raw materials soared following Russia's invasion of Ukraine. In January, the index rose 6.1% year-over-year, the fastest rate in nearly 40 years. Excluding volatile food and energy costs, the core rate surged 5.2% year-over-year. How's the job market doing? On Tuesday, the Bureau of Labor Statistics will release its job openings and labor survey, the JOLTS report for February, which is expected to show the number of job openings for the month, along with the number of hires, quits, and separations. In January, there were 11.3 million job openings across the country. That was a record. Then, on Friday, the Labor Department will release the March jobs report. Consensus estimates call for an increase of non-farm payrolls by 450,000 following gains of 678,000 back in February. And are higher taxes coming for the rich? President Biden is expected to propose a new minimum tax that would largely target billionaires when he unveils his 2023 budget. It's called the Billionaire Minimum Income Tax, and it would assess a 20% minimum tax rate on U.S. households worth more than $100 million. Over half the revenue could come from those worth more than $1 billion. The proposed levy is expected to reduce the deficit by about $360 billion in the next decade, but it has to pass first, and the Biden administration is having a tough time getting any new bills across the president's desk. There are mixed signals coming in every which way from the economy and the markets, and the winds of spring are getting very disorienting. We know the temperature has changed in the stock market as rates rise and ice gets thinner around risky assets, but we don't know how all of this will play out in terms of expectations for our own returns. It's a good time to call in some expertise, and we have just that on the show as Christina Hooper, the chief global market strategist from Invesco, joins the show to help us decode these signals. Welcome to The Express, Christina. Thanks so much for having me, Caleb. Good to have you here. Like Invesco. 
Investopedia, Invesco really has its finger on the pulse of investors, both institutional and retail. You have index funds and your ETFs are so widely held around the world. But what are you picking up as that chief strategist from your clients and your customers in this market environment? Well, I think it's a combination of confusion and exasperation. If I can, hopefully I'm I'm accurately depicting that. I mean, I I think what we're seeing and hearing are clients who feel like they just got through the pandemic. This was supposed to be a better year, a year of returning to normal. That's what we all expected. And then, of course, Russia invades Ukraine. And we have another crisis on our hands, which is exacerbating the biggest risk to the economy right now, which is inflation. So it's frustration and it's also confusion about how important um, this horrible geopolitical event is um, to markets and and ones in investment portfolio. Let's talk about the yield curve, right? We spent some time last week on the show talking about the flattening yield curve, but now the drumbeat is getting louder that the yield curve may invert that dreaded yield curve inversion, which typically precedes a recession if the Fed gets too aggressive with his rate hikes. What are the probabilities in your mind and in Invesco's mind that that happens? And what should investors know and do if that's coming? Well, we still think the Fed can engineer a soft landing this year, but a lot is dependent upon what it does going forward. So certainly the odds of a recession have increased. There's no doubt about it, but there is still the potential if the Fed does it right. And right now what we're seeing the Fed doing is to put a different spin on the old expression of speaking softly and carrying a big stick. The Fed is speaking loudly and maybe carrying a slightly smaller stick. And if that is the case, it may very well be able to engineer a soft landing if it's able to maintain credibility and we don't see inflation expectations getting way out of hand. Now, I don't want to go get off too much on a tangent, but we did get the University of Michigan consumer survey results today, and they showed that while While inflation expectations for the one year ahead are high, they're just as high as they were in the estimated reading that came out a couple weeks ago. Um, What we've seen is that for the three years ahead, they remain in check that they haven't changed from February. And so that suggests that inflation expectations over the longer term seem to still be somewhat anchored. And that's good news. If we can continue to see that, that would give us, of course, more confidence in our view that the Fed can engineer a soft landing. But it will really be dictated by what the Fed does this year. And utilizing multiple levers. So it becomes more risky. It's not just about hiking rates. We also have a Fed that it looks appears poised to significantly reduce the size of its balance sheet in short order. Yeah. So when the Fed becomes a seller of all the government bonds it has been buying for the last couple of years, they put that supply onto the market. You got to hope that there's a buyer out there, right? Do you think that that could be a potential problem? Well, I don't think so at this point, just seeing that global investors are still interested in buying treasuries. And especially in this environment, we're likely to continue to see something of a risk on slash risk off dual focus by a lot of investors. So at this juncture, no. But what I think we do have to worry about is the impact on the stock market. Now, if we were to go back, since we've done this once before, a little differently, But the last time the Fed tightened, they waited a lot longer to start to reduce the size of the balance sheet. And then when they started reducing the size of the balance sheet, they didn't really get very far. It occurred over the course of two years. It was a pretty small reduction over those two years. 
but we saw the stock market actually go up during that period. I think the big fear before the Fed started to reduce the size of its balance sheet that time around was that we would see a significant uh, stock market sell-off as a result of it. So we can only hope that history in some way rhymes and that we could see the stock market continue to move upward, even though the Fed is uh, reducing the size of its balance sheet. Let's shift gears a little bit here. Larry Fink, the chairman and CEO of BlackRock, the largest asset manager in the world, said this week in his letter to shareholders that Russia's invasion into Ukraine and the economic sanctions that followed represent the end of globalization as we know it. Do you agree? And if so, what is the significance for investors? Those are important words. I think that, you know, if we look over time at the path of globalization and we chart it out 20 or 30 years from now, what we're likely to say is that over the last few years, globalization took a step back. It started really with the pandemic and that desire to move from just-in-time supply chains to just-in-case supply chains, which meant increasing one's inventory and factories in areas closer to home. So it wasn't as as global as it had been before. But I think that we're part of a long march towards greater and greater globalization. We're just experiencing a hiccup right now. It could last a few more years, but capitalism has a funny way of forcing companies and economies to become efficient. And part of that is really greater and greater globalization. I really want to switch gears one more time here. You've had a very interesting career. It's Women's History Month. We're celebrating women. We always do here at Investopedia. But looking at your career, you have more degrees, Christina, than a thermometer, and you have an alphabet soup of credentials and certifications. And I mean that in a great way. I'm just going to list a few of them for my listeners. But I have a follow-up to this question. I think it's important. I think you and I both have teenage kids, maybe some of them going into college. So you earned your Bachelor of Arts degree, cum laude from Wesley. You got your JD from Pace. You have an MBA in finance from NYU. You have a master's degree from the Cornell University of Industrial and Labor Relations. You're a certified financial planner, a chartered alternative investment analyst, a certified investment management analyst, and a chartered financial consultant. Of all those degrees, which one has served you the most in your current role as chief global market strategist? Strategist for Invesco US? Probably the best education I've gotten is spending time with clients. And that's really what has forced me to do a lot of the graduate work and certifications I have is just the questions that arise and wanting to understand things and know as much as possible in order to go back to clients and have the right answers and have thoughtful guidance to provide them. So I, I, I can't pinpoint one. It's more just the education of being in this industry for 25 plus years that has certainly been helped by stepping away. I did business school at night. I did my Cornell master's on weekends. And and I've, of course, done the certifications at night and summer vacations. But it, it wouldn't be as valuable if I wasn't working during the day and having exposure to clients and living all of this in real time for so many years. Well, if you're graduating college now and you wanted to get into financial services or the investment industry, which degree or certification would you pursue today? And what area of the industry would you try to enter as a 22-year-old you? So I would recommend an undergraduate degree in psychology. 
because so much of what we do is really behavioral finance at the end of the day. So to have some kind of underpinning in psychology, maybe not a major in it, but a minor in it, maybe a major in economics, but you can also always do a grad school degree in finance that can round out your education. I do think psychology is becoming increasingly important because it is a people's behaviors that really can dictate how well prepared they are for important life goals like saving for retirement. You can do as much financial education as you want, but if you don't understand the psychological dimension to investing, then you really aren't as valuable to to clients. Great point. I was an art major and now I'm the editor-in-chief of Investopedia. How does that happen? I have no idea, but here we are 26, 27 years later, just like you. That means you're (laughs) well-rounded. And 12 years in the restaurant business. So knowing people, knowing how to serve customer service and knowing how businesses work, I guess that all helps in the long run. Christina, we're a site built on our investing terms. That was our foundation. We still have that today, over 20,000 of those terms on the site. What's your favorite investing or finance term and why? Which one just speaks to your soul? Stay the course. But I don't think that's an actual term. But to me, that is, and it it goes part and parcel with my answer to the last question. It's about behaviors and understanding that humans can be their own worst enemy. I mean, some of the biggest mistakes that were made during the global financial crisis weren't people who stayed in the market and lived through the downturn. It was those who got out, who got scared and got out and didn't know when to get back in and missed out on a very, very strong market recovery. I think fear and to a certain extent, greed are our biggest enemies. And so to stay the course, to come up with a plan, I mean, I guess if I could answer the question again, maybe I'd say financial planning, that idea that we set a plan and stick to it is absolutely critical. I mean, what's the expression that I love so much? People don't plan to fail, they fail to plan. That's so good. And you're perfectly okay to use a Jack Bogle expression and stay the course. That was the founder of Vanguard and so famous for saying that and said it to us in an interview. So I respect that as well. And I agree. Financial planning, having the plan is so helpful, no matter what's going on in the markets. We so appreciate your perspective. Christina Hooper, the Chief Global Market Strategist from Invesco US. Thanks so much for joining The Express. Thank you so much, Caleb. It's terminology time, time for us to get smart with the investing and finance term we need to know this week. This week's term comes to us from Jamie in Lafayette, Louisiana. Les le bon ton roulé. And Jamie suggests monopsony. We like that term because as all this talk of globalization heats up and countries try to insource more of their own commodities, we could see some monopsonies popping up among big industry and the government. According to Investopedia, a monopsony is a market condition in which there is only one buyer, the monopsonist. Like a monopoly, a monopsony also has imperfect market market conditions. The difference between a monopoly and a monopsony is primarily in the difference between the controlling entities. A single buyer dominates a monopsonized market, while an individual seller controls a monopolized market. Monopsonists are common to areas where they supply most or all of the region's jobs. For that reason, monopsonies commonly experience low prices from wholesalers and an advantage in paid wages. Good suggestion, Jamie in Lafayette, Louisiana. A slick pair of Investopedia socks are on the way to you for your next stroll around Vermilionville in lovely Lafayette. We're going to let the poet Amanda Gorman take us out this week. A good suggestion for my two daughters. Here's Gorman at President Biden's inauguration on January 20th, 2021, reciting her poem, The Hill We Climb. 
as we step out of the shade of flame diverse and beautiful will emerge battered and beautiful when day comes we step out of the shade of flame and unafraid the new dawn blooms as we free it for there is always light if only we're brave enough to see it if only we're brave enough to be it if only we are brave enough to be it incredible poem listen to the whole thing if you haven't it will lift you up Let's be brave and be kind as we roll on down the tracks this week, and we'll talk again a little further on down the line. 